0: I want us to imagine that we're in Jerusalem during the days of Jesus' public ministry. We're in the temple. We're in the section called the Court of Women, the large outer court where the treasury is located, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a key festival in Jerusalem, a celebration of Yahweh's faithfulness to Israel during her 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And at this feast... There are four great towers. They're massive, and each tower has four golden lampstands at their summit. And the fire from these 16 lampstands is blazing. The whole city of Jerusalem is illuminated with their light. This is a time of rejoicing, a time for singing and celebration. There's music from the Levitical orchestra. That's right, the Levite priests have an orchestra. And a choir, too. And and people are dancing. They're dancing in the temple. Not like at a club today uh, with men and women out on the dance floor. But men of piety and good works. They're the ones dancing in the temple courts while the women look on. But even so, the place is bumping. The Levites are laying down some sick beats. And the celebration continues all throughout the nights of the feast. And celebration of God's amazing salvation. Especially... God's deliverance in the Exodus as he led his people with his presence in a pillar of fire by night. And using our sanctified imaginations, it's in this setting we see Jesus of Nazareth standing up and in a loud voice declaring, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life the levites stop playing their instruments the men of piety and good works stop dancing everything comes to a halt think of any religious figure in history abraham moses mohammed only jesus Talks like that. Only Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And John the apostle he faithfully records what Jesus says that we might believe. That's the evangelist's stated purpose for his gospel in chapter 20 verse 21 that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Life in Jesus name through faith jesus the bread of life jesus the light of life jesus the way the truth and the life jesus the resurrection and the life friends who is this jesus who mediates god's life to sinners and how is the life jesus mediates appropriated how do we get this life how do sinners receive this light which produces in us life? Well, God's grace is assisting us. That's what we're going to learn this morning. And so we pray now that God would teach us, that God would teach us, that he would reveal Jesus to us by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of his most holy word. So if you look at your bulletins, you can see point number one, Jesus is the light of the world Whoever follows Jesus will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what Jesus claims of himself in verse 12. And even if we don't understand every single nuance of what he's getting at, uh, we hear the authority wrapped up with the claim, don't we? Uh, Jesus is saying something in verse 12 other people never say. Not unless they're insane blasphemers. Flip back for a second to chapter 7 of John's Gospel, verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. That verse, New City, sets the stage for everything that follows in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, our text today. It's one unit, it's one event, recorded over two chapters. Here again, beloved, the words of our Lord. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Now, at one level, of course... All the Old Testament prophets who came before Jesus insisted on that very thing. Their teaching was not their own. Uh, Their teaching is from Yahweh, who sent them. So Samuel, Daniel, Isaiah, Joel, they're all merely uh, conduits of divine revelation. But Jesus is claiming something more. Earlier prophets could thunder, thus says the Lord. But as we saw back in chapter 5... Jesus' words and deeds are so much at one with the Father, not only because of his unqualified obedience, but also because he he does everything God the Father does, that Jesus can legitimately and repeatedly preface his remarks with an authoritative, I tell you. Think of what uh, Luke records in chapter 4, verse 31. I'll just read this. Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath day, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Now, this next illustration makes me sound a whole lot smarter than I actually am. But near the beginning of his career as a physicist, Albert Einstein believed... Newtonian mechanics were no longer adequate to reconcile the laws of classical mechanics with the laws of the electromagnetic field, according to my Wikipedia research. So Einstein whipped up his special theory of relativity. Energy equals mass times the velocity of light in a vacuum squared, or E equals MC squared. The title of his paper, published in 1905, was on the electrodynamics of moving bodies. He wrote that as he was serving as a patent clerk. That paper did not have a single footnote in it. Think about that. What what Einstein theorized in 1905 was utterly original. In effect, Einstein was saying, Newton told you this... I say unto you this E equals M C squared. He was speaking with authority. And know this, friends, what I'm teaching you, what I'm teaching you today about God and about God's ways, not one word is based on my own authority, my own spiritual insights. Everything that Pastor Alex said today, same thing, not one of it was his own words, is his own insights into how God works and thinks. We wouldn't dare. I don't care how talented a public speaker a man may be, how excellent his stories, how excellent his illustrations may be. He can be William Shakespeare when he gets behind that pulpit. Nothing a preacher says will ever, ever be as important, as effective, as endued with the Holy Spirit's power. As preaching the biblical text, verse by verse, faithfully, making those progressive biblical theological connections and applying the text to the life of the congregation. Any knowledge a human being may have of God is always, always a mediated knowledge. It's based on what God has revealed of himself to us to to a very limited extent in nature itself. We read of that in in Romans chapter 1 to a very limited extent and in the 66 books of canonical scripture. Because we don't have direct, unmediated access to God's mind, do we? But the teaching of Jesus is teaching with authority, divine authority. Jesus is God's divine revelation. His teaching isn't the, isn't the teaching of the scribes and the, uh, the religious leaders of his day. Theirs was a derived authority, Their understanding of Scripture came from the tradition of the elders, the fathers of Judaism, and so they would qualify every single opinion, every reading, every judgment with, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this. Whereas Jesus, he receives his authority directly from the Father in heaven. Jesus teaches without footnotes. His knowledge of God is unmediated which is precisely what our Lord tells Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 11. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And now, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life we hear the authority bound up with that claim but what does it mean what's jesus saying well there's two ways to approach this question the first is through the old testament background because when jesus makes this declaration He does so with all the revelation of the Old Testament behind him. Light is a rich Old Testament symbol, and Jesus' light metaphor is steeped in Old Testament allusions. Uh, What Jesus declares about himself in verse 12 of John 8, in in the context, remember, of the Feast of Tabernacles and, and the Exodus background, that would prompt all sorts of associations with the pillar of cloud and fire by which God led the nation of Israel in their journey. So think of uh, Exodus 13:21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Or, when Jesus makes this grandiose declaration, uh, people might think of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light. And, of course, Jesus himself, he fulfills Old Testament promises of the coming of the light of salvation and the light of God. Isaiah 9.2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. In this land of deep darkness is the region of Zebulun and Nephtali and Galilee. The region in the far north of Israel's territory where the Assyrian deportment started. The people there will see a great light. And of course, this is the very place where much of Jesus' ministry occurs. He is that great light. Or think of Isaiah 49.6. I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And for the readers of John's gospel, those of us who have been there from the beginning, from chapter 1, then we've already learned from John's prologue that Jesus is the light of all mankind, haven't we? That's already been established. It was one of the first things John taught us about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, that is the darkness of corruption and rebellion, and the darkness has not overcome it. In those verses, light has an overtone of revelation, doesn't it? John the Apostle is speaking of divine truth light that's being revealed to this fallen world. Divine truth light to which John the Baptist bears witness in Jesus Christ, revelation and truth from God that is overcoming the darkness of moral corruption and ignorance, divine truth light in which people must believe. And Jesus is the one who brings revelation. Jesus is the one who brings transformation. Jesus is the one who overcomes moral darkness. Which dovetails then, deliberately, with John chapter 3, Verse 19. I want you to turn there to see this. We're just we're tracking along this theme of light in John's Gospel, John 3:19 to 21. This also, obviously, this text is chapter three, so it comes before what we're reading of now in John chapter eight, before the Feast of Tabernacles, and this great public pronouncement in, in verse 12. But here we read that in this age of God's inaugurated but not yet consummated kingdom, the light the light is still in mortal combat with the darkness. So look at 3:19. This is the verdict. That is, this is the negative verdict. So we can picture Jesus the judge passing sentence from the bench, or it's actually John the Apostle saying this, but this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Light that came into the world was Jesus' incarnation. He is the light. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. People prefer to live without such knowledge of God, without such brilliant purity. They're not willing to live by the truth. That's what John is teaching. People choose the darkness, and their condemnation lies in that very fact. They chose darkness. They shut themselves up in the darkness. They cut themselves off from the light. Why do they do that? Because... Their deeds were evil. They're so immersed in their wrongdoing, they have no wish to be disturbed. They refuse to be shaken out of their comfortable sinfulness. They set their love on darkness. They love the darkness and hate the light. It's as bad as that. And so they refuse to come into the light. Why not? Verse 20b. For fear that their deeds will be exposed. Oh. The verb John uses there suggests not only exposure, but shame and conviction. This hatred of the light in the fallen human heart is fathered by a revulsion against being exposed by the light, being shamed by the light, being convicted by the light. It's rooted in self-righteousness and pride. And beloved, this divine verdict applies to every person, every person in their natural fallen state. Why doesn't your lovely mother, the gentlest, kindest sweetest person who ever lived why doesn't she come to jesus christ the light of the world in repentant faith you've evangelized her a hundred times what's the matter is she bone ignorant or something god tells us in john chapter three because to come to the light means to have one's darkness shown for what it truly is and to have it rebuked for what it truly is. Sinners love sin. Your mom, your child, your friend, your unbelieving spouse, they love their sin. They hate the light. It's not ignorance. It's not that they lack the basic faculties of reason. It's not misunderstanding. Sinners prefer moral darkness. Give a pig the option of sleeping in a bed with clean sheets or wallowing in a pit of mud. Which will they choose? It's going to be the mud pit every single time. Why? Because that's their nature. It prefers mud. It loves filth. And before the new birth, we're all like bugs that run from the light when someone picks up the rock. We love our corruption. We delight in our evil. We love darkness. We hate light. God says so. You're not the exception. And we refuse to come into the light because if we do, then we're exposed for what we truly are. From God's perspective, not society's, but from God's perspective. It's like, it's like the bathroom scale. Sitting in the corner of the washroom, gathering dust, after we've blown the diet and we haven't worked out for months, we don't want to step onto that scale and see the truth. In the same way, sinners resent the truth, they resent the scriptures, they resent the church, and they resent Christians. They run from it all. It's a strong, dominating compulsion in a fallen human heart. And so, that's why... We pray, Lord, you change their heart. Give them a new nature. Grant them the new birth. Monergistic regeneration. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. right? But by contrast, whoever lives by the truth is willing to have their deeds exposed. Not to parade their own righteousness before the world, but to allow Jesus who is the light, to do the truth through them. Look at 321. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So while the lover of darkness shuns the light out of fear of exposure and shame and conviction, the lover of light doesn't prance forward to parade their their wares with cocky self-righteousness, but rather so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done in the sight of God. The, The Christian's worshipful shout of praise is, all glory be to God, all glory to him. I'm not an intrinsically superior person. I'm not intrinsically more holy than anybody else. I am the handiwork of God. Beloved, if we enjoy the light, It's because all that has been performed has been done through God in union with Him and therefore by His power. We were dead in our trespasses and our sin. And now, John, the evangelist, he expects us now to link with their common themes of light, his prologue in John chapter 1, what we just learned now in John chapter 3. He expects us to link both those texts to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The penny should drop, and in a profound way. Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate revelation and truth from God. Truth revealed to the world, this this moral order and rebellion against my father. I am truth and divine revelation. I am light that is overcoming the darkness of this world's moral corruption and ignorance. I am the light of spiritual life, of eternal life, of God's life, granted freely to sinners. And whoever follows me Whoever comes to me and believes in me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Sinners either come into my light by faith and live, or they flee from my holy light in shame and die in their sin. Verse 12 is one of those life-changing Destiny altering sorts of verses. Each one of us here today has come to a crossroads, as it were. Friend, I want to ask Do you see? Is God teaching you what this verse says about you? And what it is, who it is you so desperately, desperately need? Do you see from this verse who Jesus truly is and what he alone provides? Is God teaching you? Pray that he would. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a divine promise. It's just one verse, but now the theme of light stops. It's not developed any further. And what begins now from verse 13 all the way down to verse 29 At first blush, seems to be a detour, but it's not. What happens with the rest of this passage is Jesus uses, he uses the Pharisees' challenge to him in verse 13 to focus their attention and our attention on his relationship with God the Father. Their challenge to Jesus' authority, their challenge to his solitary witness, now becomes an opportunity for Jesus to explain the unique relationship between two persons of the triune Godhead, God the Father and God the Son. And that intra-triune relationship is the key. It's the key to seeing Jesus as the light of the world. You see, the better we understand the Trinity and the nature of the relationship between the persons of the Godhead, the better we'll understand Jesus' declaration in verse 12. So if you look at your bulletin again, the big picture I stole this from John Piper. The dominant focus in the apparent detour in verses 13 to 29, the detour away from I am the light of the world, is that the testimony and judgments of Jesus are true and authoritative because of his relationship with God the Father. At least seven times in this passage, Jesus points to the fact that he is from the Father. He speaks on the authority of the Father. He is going to the Father. He does nothing on his own. Jesus claims, in other words, that his authority is not owing to any human origin. It's owing to his relationship with God the Father. Beloved, we're we're plumbing now one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith today, the Holy Trinity. I'm excited to preach the rest of this passage. The Lord blessed me very richly this week as I prepared this sermon. I want you to share in that blessing by God's grace. So let's turn now to our second point. The sermon is half over, so don't worry about time. The validity of Jesus' solitary witness question, verses 13 to 20. Verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. And the law of Moses required multiple witnesses in in the attestation of something your testimony your your solitary testimony is not valid in other words jesus how can you make these grandiose claims on your own authority but notice they don't address themselves to the main question do they they don't speak of light or darkness at all come follow me you'll never you'll never walk in dark they don't they don't deal with any of that stuff instead they fasten on this list legal technicality jesus is bearing witness to himself they say and therefore because of that his witness is not valid which doesn't necessarily mean it's false uh, they're saying it has no legal worth there's no reason to accept it or even engage with it case closed you're just by yourself Moses says more witnesses are required. And in response to their challenge, our Lord says several things to show that his solitary testimony witness is valid. It's very valid. In fact, he speaks with divine authority. So let's fly over this passage at 30,000 feet with an extended paraphrase. I'm going to do this first. I think this might help us uh, to take in kind of the big picture of what's happening here. But we'll come back to what the text actually says verse by verse in a moment. So this is how Jesus responds now to the challenge of the Pharisees, to their challenge as to the validity of Jesus' solitary witness. He says, this is a paraphrase, look, I I may bear witness to myself, but both the truth of what I say and my solitary witness is valid because I know where I come from and where I'm going. I come from my Father in heaven. And I'm going to my father in heaven. That makes my solitary witness valid. You are judging by merely human standards. You don't have the spirit. What's more, you're mistaken. I do have a witness. I do have one who testifies to the truth of what I say. My father in heaven who sent me. I do nothing on my own authority but speak just what the Father has taught me. Everything I say is nothing more and nothing less than what the Father gives me to say. Verse 29, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. There, there's a lot there, I know. We're kind of going back into our John 5 uh, sermon from a few weeks ago, but it's vital we understand That this is why, this is why when this carpenter from Nazareth stands up at the Feast of Tabernacles and proclaims, I am the light of the world, this is why his solitary testimony is vowed. And this is why, friends, we all must heed the truth of that testimony or die in our sins. Because what Jesus says has the authority of God the Father behind it. Jesus speaks just what the Father has taught him. That's all Jesus ever speaks. And to deny verse 12's validity, for us to challenge Jesus' claim to be the light of the world in any way, is to deny the true witness of God the Father. It's to deny who Jesus is. It's to deny where Jesus came from and where he's going is to deny Jesus' relationship with God the Father, that they are one in purpose. It isn't just a matter of dismissing Jesus, what what a crackpot that Nazarene is, but two persons of the Godhead, God the Son and God the Father. These Pharisees are skating over the thin ice of hell, as is every person here today who refuses to come into the light of Christ. That's not something I say lightly or on my own authority. Our Lord warns us three times in this passage, you, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. 8 14. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. Again, we hear the authority wrapped up with the claim, don't we? Jesus is saying, I know my unique origin and destiny, but you don't have a clue. I I come from the Father. And I'm going to the Father once I accomplish His will in this fallen world. Which means they're they're, they're in no position to comment on His witness. Who do they think they are? Verse 15, you judge by human standards. And the Greek word there is sarx, it's flesh. You judge according to the flesh. You're resorting to the criteria of flesh, of fallen mankind in a fallen world, without the control of the Spirit. How can you hope to make a proper judgment about me? You need to be taught by God. You need to be born again, born from above, by the Spirit. 15b, I pass judgment on no one. Jesus doesn't judge the same way the Pharisees do. Jesus doesn't appeal to any superficial, fleshy criteria. Verse 16, but if I do judge... My decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. Which means the Pharisees' objection in verse 13 about Jesus' solitary witness being invalid is itself invalid. How dare they say such a thing? How dare they? And now Jesus builds on this truth and he quotes their verse 13 Old Testament proof text right back at them. Verse 17. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Well, I've got those bases covered. Verse 18 I am one who testifies to myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Isn't that glorious? I, I love it when Jesus speaks that way. I love John's gospel, it's so explicit. And of course, God the Holy Spirit will be added as another witness. In chapters 14 through 16. Verse 19. Then they asked him, where is your father? And Jesus responds to the Pharisees by saying, basically, my father is inaccessible to you. You can only know my father if you know me. You can only know God if you know me. I and the father are so united that if you knew and loved either of us you would know and love the other 19b you do not know me or my father jesus replied if you knew me you would know my father also friends hear me it's possible to know to know god the father Only as we know Jesus, his son. It's possible to know God the Father only as we know Jesus, his son. Why? Because Jesus is the revelation of the Father. It's a key doctrine of this gospel that it's in the Son and in the Son alone that the Father is revealed. No one has ever seen God. It's the Son who has made him known, 118. That's how the prologue ends. This is fundamental. This is foundational. Therefore, therefore, to reject Jesus is to place oneself out of reach of the divine testimony. Hear that again. To reject Jesus is to place oneself out of reach of the divine testimony. And the Pharisees, they prided themselves on their knowledge of God, didn't they? But Jesus tells them here, they have no knowledge of God at all. 19b. You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. "Do you imagine hearing that? If you knew me, you would know my father also. And of course, that that authoritative declaration doesn't just apply to these Pharisees here in chapter 8. It applies to the whole world. Friend, if you don't honor Jesus as God, then you don't honor the Father who sent him. We looked at this in great detail back in John 5, but let me just say this. In 2015, Dr. Larissa Hawkins an associate professor of political science at Wheaton College, a Christian college, posted a photo of herself on Facebook wearing a hijab, along with a lengthy post in which she said, in part, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. Wheaton College moved to place Dr. Hawkins on administrative leave, which sparked a great debate, a great deal of debate at the time about whether Muslims and Christians do in fact worship the same God. We know where Pope Francis stands on this matter. What does Jesus say? 19b You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied, if you knew me you would know my father also. Muslims hold that there is one God. Muslims believe that Allah has no partners. And assigning partners to him is, is called shirk. It's the highest blasphemy. John 1.1 to a Muslim is the highest blasphemy. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christians believe that within the one being, that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These two views of the nature of God, Christian and Muslim, are irreconcilable. Absolutely irreconcilable. It's no use pretending the sake of political correctness or whatever that that they're not please christian love love your muslim friend and neighbors enough to insist on this faithfully proclaim this truth basically we believe different things with respect to our duty toward god as well muslims believe that a person's duty toward allah is to submit to his will the goal of islam is not salvation, but to bring the entire world under the rule of Allah. The Christian believes that the most fundamental duty toward God, at which obedience arises, is repentance and faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The goal of Christianity is the salvation of sinners through the righteousness, substitutionary atonement, and resurrection of Jesus Christ Christ. The God-man. Do you see? The goals of the two religions could not be more dissimilar. And because the goals differ, how we worship and how we act in the world also radically differ. Beloved, we're required to lovingly state this truth and work out the implications. 19b, you do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Just, just think about that for a minute. That, that, that's a theme we find all throughout John's gospel, too. Look at Turn to uh, chapter 14, verse 7 for a second. This is, this is Jesus speaking during the Upper Room Discourse. We'll be coming to this, I suppose, in a, in a few months down the road, but He says in 14.7, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus is saying, Philip, what you've witnessed these past three years as you've lived and as you've traveled with me is nothing less than the revelation of the Father in the Son. That's a fact, Philip. It may blow all your monotheistic categories out of the water, but it's true all the same. New City, hear the scripture. Hear God's truth. God the Father has made himself known in the eternal word. Jesus, who is himself God, but who became flesh. Therefore, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. And Jesus exhorts his apostles and he exhorts us to believe it fourteen eleven believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Okay, back to chapter eight. Eight twenty. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one sees them because his hour had not yet come. But when that hour does come, the hour determined by the Father, Jesus will be seized and he will be crucified For the salvation of all whom the Father has given to him. All who come to Jesus and believe. They will have life in his name. Verse 21. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away. Where? Where is Jesus going? Back to the Father. And the glory he shared with the Father from eternity past. I am going away and you will look for me. And you will die in your sin. They will go on looking for the Messiah. They will go on waiting for the Messiah. But they will not find him because they've rejected the only Messiah there is. Don Carson says the singular sin in verse 21 refers to the particular sin of unbelief, of rejecting Jesus and the revelation he is, the revelation he brings. Where I go, you cannot come. How can it be otherwise? Isn't Isn't that consistent with Jesus' teaching throughout John's gospel? To reject the Son is to reject the Father. So if they do that, if they reject Jesus, how can they hope to enter into the Father's presence on the last day? How can any of us hope such a thing? Jesus says, where I go, you cannot come. This is a warning then. A warning the Pharisees must heed. If they persist in their blind rejection of Jesus as the light of the world, then they will perish away from God, in hell, forever. Friends, there are eternal consequences for rejecting the eternal Son, the one who is from above, the one who came into this fallen world, this moral order that's in rebellion against his Father. God's sinful image bearers do not thumb their noses at God Almighty with impunity. Where I go, you cannot come. Verse 22, this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. Do you recall the story of Moses and uh, the burning bush from Exodus 3? Moses is tending sheep on Mount Horeb, and he sees a bush that's on fire, but which is not being consumed, and God calls to him from the bush. Moses, Moses, Moses says, here I am, do not come any closer, God says, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he states, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then God commissions Moses to go back to Egypt and to deliver the children of Abraham from their bondage. God is going to fulfill his covenantal promise that he made to Abraham 400 years before. And in Exodus 3.13, Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And the least that name suggests is that God is self-existent. He is eternal. He is completely independent. He is utterly sovereign. God is what he is, dependent on no one and nothing. I am what I am. Look at verse 23 again. In John's gospel, chapter 8. But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. And the he is added in the NIV English translation. If you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Verse 25. Who are you? Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. My revelatory witness has been consistent from the start of my ministry. This isn't anything new. And what I'm claiming now to be the great I am, however hard that is for you to understand, is consistent with what I've said throughout my whole ministry, and my father testifies to this. He backs me up. And so, if you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. But the question is, when will the full disclosure of who Jesus is take place? When will Jesus' glory be most fully revealed? When the Son of Man is lifted up. Verse 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Again, that he is added. You will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Which doesn't mean that at Jesus' crucifixion, all the Pharisees became believers. Jesus is saying, you yourselves, unwittingly, you're going to help me finish being the light of the world. You are going to lift me up. You are going to crucify me. And when I'm crucified, my role as the saving, redeeming, creation-filling light of the world will be secured. And I will rise, and I will reign, and I will shine forever. Forever. I will be glorified through the cross. And the day will come when you will know this. You can know now and have your sins forgiven. Or you can be the ones who crucify me, who die in your sins, and find out the truth only later when it's too late. On that final day when people are forced to kneel before me in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that day when every tongue will acknowledge that I am to the glory of my Father in heaven. Verse 29, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Verse 30, Even as he spoke, many believed in him. And friends, Do you know what happened to those people? They didn't die in their sins. They lived. And they're living even now. And they'll live forever in Jesus' presence in the new heavens and new earth. The choice is yours, as it was theirs. You will know one day that Jesus is who he and his father says he is the light of the world. I pray to God that you might know it in this life. Amen.